All right, so here we are to have an opportunity to talk about Edouard Glissant's work. Um, really glad to have some time to talk to you all um, about our treatment and sort of first way into his book, uh, Introduction to a Poetics of Diversity. Um, I will say this, that if, if someone is thinking about, you know, what classic Glissant texts would be taught in a critical theory seminar, I think people would very much be uh, looking at poetics of relation. But I really wanted us to go through uh, the Poetics of the Diverse essay, uh, or it's actually a collection of essays, uh, for a few reasons. Um, first of all, uh, I think it's actually the more accessible Glissant, which he's never, uh, never not difficult, but... Um, I think it's some of his more straightforward works. I think we get a sense of, in the book, about how his poetics relate to ethical and political concerns, which are important to me. I'm thinking about his discussion of rooted identity, uh, whether it's, it's rhizomatic or single-rooted, and thinking about the single-rooted in relation to authoritarian and genocidal regimes. So I think like him being bold and making those proclamations is really interesting. Um, and I also think it's interesting because the essays have conversations after them, a question answer. Um, and it's, uh, maybe a personal thing of mine, but I like to, to, I like to read those pieces where, uh, a thinker is sort of in action and thinking on their feet and the way they both can be sort of disappointingly, um, not responding to the question shows that they're like most academics at presentations. Um, uh, but also you get to see the sort of live and improvised uh, sense of some of, of, of the thinking Glissant does with his own work. In terms of the relationship of, of Glissant in this particular book to the rest of the class, I mean, I'm not going to rehearse, of course, the, the entire seminar, but, you know, we have been talking for so long about, or in so many different contexts, not so long, but in so many different contexts about the function of absences and silences. And one of the things that has been a common theme across those absences and silences has been how absence and silence can dis disrupt and disorient hegemonic narratives, whether that's, you know, somebody like Spivak and Can the Subaltern Speak, where she deploys it really to attack notions of Eurocentrism uh, in discourse and, and, and political theory, or Derrida with notions of the supplement, uh, spillers with sort of undoing gender and, and things for which we have no names. And I think these, these moments of, in a, in a, in a positive sense, the destructive power of absence and silence is such an important part of critical theory. But what Glissant does is, is offer an interpretation of those silences and absences that are in, in, in ways that emphasize how they are productive. Right, how they make cultures, how they make language, how they make a poetics, how they make an identity. Um, and so they don't simply contest hegemonic narratives, but actually generate uh, worlds for people. And for me, it's an important, I don't want to call it like the other side of the coin, because I'm not sure, and I mean it really like open-ended, like I'm never quite sure how it fits with more critical narratives that, that, that work at the level of negation and sort of letting us figure out what comes next. I like that Glissant uses those some of those same motifs around trace and supplement and so forth to get back to the formation of, in the case of the book, of Caribbean identity and Caribbean people to really say like the questions of absence and silence are not just about contestation and negation, 
but also the conditions of building things. And, you know, um, when he talks about chaos, it isn't about the disassembly of an order that we, and we want order or a different order, but that chaos is its own kind of productivity. And he, you know, he alludes to, you know, to theoretical physics and who knows what he really knows about theoretical physics, but he knows enough to know that, you know, language of chaos and, and quantum movement, these don't actually dis, these don't disassemble structures in the world. They underpin them and make them what they are. And so taking that model to say, there are other ways of thinking about absences and silences that sometimes those are put to work by marginalized or subaltern communities to make entire worlds. And that has captured me. I mean, I, I, said it in class and this is clear from the google search glisson is one of my intellectual heroes right um in the sense of i just think he says something so unique and so important and singular and it really for me comes down to that of, of like honoring the humanity of people who've been historically subjected to such violence you know enslaved people on the plantation to say they're also humans you know that they've made worlds out of this experience and that means we have to think about absences and silences differently. And that has always just really struck me as such an important ethical imperative and cultural imperative. Um, and so I was glad that we had a chance to re-glissant in the context of, of all of this other stuff. Um, and that's, uh, that's my way into it. I'm curious uh, with you all, sort of what struck you about glissant. We all have different interests and different ways into texts. Yeah, I really loved um, what we read because it was a extremely accessible while maintaining its complexity. Um, also, like just kind of thinking of everything that you were just saying, I do love that productivity of um, absence or abyss, as you talk about, and trauma. He moves right into how that's generative, both in literature and life, mm -hmm. um, which is something I'm very interested in. And um, I think while it's so there in so many of the things we read, it's like directly on the page in a greater way throughout the course of this collection. Um, and then what I was also like, I think, most interested in in the whole collection is the root rhizome conversation yeah uh, when i read and i'll say this wrong deleuze and guattari is that pronounced right yes yay uh i'm 90 percent sure about <laughs> g right deleuze yes but guattari i mean that's i, I think been a puzzle for a lot of people <laughs> anyway go ahead uh but yeah when i read them last uh year i've been unable to stop thinking about the rhizome mm. um, as someone interested in like ecology as like a new frame for thinking about the world in mm -hmm. terms of like interconnected intermeshed um, with the human like there's a point in here where he talks about uh, the connection of the human and I forget how he says it but maybe like the non-human in all capitals and that like connects with me a lot of like conversations that are happening about the more than human world mm -hmm. and its mm -hmm. connection to humans. Um, so I think that's kind of the overview of like what I found like really like striking about the whole collection. Tell me a little bit about the more than human. This is interesting. Actually, this is one of these critical phrase, critical terms I don't know. So <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a phrase that a lot of like um, 
new feminist materialists or feminist scientists uh, scholars are using. Like I mentioned in class yesterday, Stacey Alimo, um, mm -hmm. as one of them who discussed the, the more than human world to kind of um, not just talk about other mammals or other even like living beings, but like all of the aspects of the world that um, impact us. Like Stacey Alimo talks a lot about chemicals as something that structures a lot of our lives um, physically, emotionally. Um, and these are like unseen things. They're kind of like mental absences in mm -hmm. the way that we live our lives. And yet they are there like all the time, everywhere. So I guess that kind of connects to how Gisant uses like the physics chaos theory to discuss like what science can show us about unseen invisible things structuring our world that are very much there and real mm -hmm. um, that like we often take for granted as imaginary yeah. but aren't and we know that. Um, and I like that the the unseen structuring our world because I think so much of of that talk in 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 other figures around the 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 silent or the absent is about how the unseen in our world actually sort of creates a like a hole right and and just mm -hmm. you know disrupts or dismantles the world but this way of of thinking about how more than human that structures the world without being seen and what would it mean to think about that but also you know this is a, a bigger issue i'll just let's sort of put it out there maybe talk about it a little bit um but the way landscape is so important it's always important to remember that glissant is a poet right a poet and a novelist but a poet first and so the caribbean landscape and poetry that's been central to the tradition and then the idea of the rhizome is so important because you know when you're talking about the caribbean landscape to talk about the mangrove tree is to talk about this tree that lives at the shoreline that lives in the ocean lives in salt water salt water doesn't kill it but you know so you can see like as the as a poet of like the middle passage and and you know the history of of slavery and, and colonialism you know the sea is death but there's also the sense of the sea like gives life if you are a different kind of rooted plant. Right? Yeah. That makes me think of like the various beach scenes in um, Naipaul's The Mimic Man, um, where mm. I, he comes across the main character, I think, like, a, I think a mangrove, but a tree kind of um, between sea and land, mm -hmm. while also at a different point. Um, he encounters like a body that just died in the sea like and a lot of like violence happens to him on the beach um, mm -hmm. and it just kind of you know encompasses all of these different relationships of like I guess the Caribbean relationship to the ocean and the beach and land and I'm saying this poorly no, but <laughs> and, and memory and history yeah yeah, yeah. Because it's it's death and beauty and terror and life all at the same time. Yeah. yeah. So what kind of stuff struck you? Um, I was really interested in his idea of chaos, in particular the way that it relates to like linearity. Mm. Um, and in particular, I really liked the example he gave when he was talking about chaos theory. And he said that it's impossible to measure the coast of Brittany. Mm -hmm. because 
it's always fluctuating and I just I really love that idea of like an impossible it's impossible to measure and mm-hmm. people try you know like you want to know how many miles and it's impossible to measure because things are always changing yeah and um and the the desire to I really I loved his discussion of like the desire to understand and eliminate chaos and a chaos world is an un, like a, de- a desire to reestablish like a sovereign unity mm-hmm. I think is what he says and I just I really appreciated a, a work that was asking us to sit in chaos and yeah be okay with it and I think that desire to establish a stable order that denies chaos you know I I think these kinds of conversations have led some figure, some uh, readers of Glissantum. I'm looking, I was looking up over here earlier, Peter Howard's uh, book, Absolutely Postcolonial, uh, very critical of Glissant saying like it's, he's not political enough, right? And that these moments are more sort of evocations. But I, always, I really like the politics of that because what it tells me is, or what it reminds me is that that desire to, to not sit with chaos and to establish an order is a, an authoritarian impulse, right? In us, that then becomes political. And the way it sort of puts us in that moment of saying like the anxieties we might have around chaos and around openness and the immeasurable right shoreline is actually that impulse is an impulse that we ought to reflect on, right? We ought to reflect on it because it's the impulse towards the elimination of differences the elimination of things that might put me in question. And it, in those exact moments of like eliminating the things that put me in question, I think he's right. That is, that's genocide. I mean, it's, I don't think it's a stretch. And I think that he also is asking us as creative people, like, what does it mean when you don't sit with that chaos as a poet and instead have a poetry that gives an order or a single root? Right, that's the origins of nationalism. And we didn't talk very much about epics and myths in in class, but that's such a huge part of one of the chapters in the book. You know, that myths and epics are really about deciding who is and who is not a part of the nation or the the community. And those moments where, you know, because those moments of epic epic and myth making are so important, whether it's like, you know, the Hebrew Bible being a story of the Jewish people or you know, Romulus and Remus and the creation of Rome or whatever it is, you know, manifest destiny in the United States, these mythic epic ideas, um, they serve a real purpose and seeing them for what they are, uh, you know, it changed the way I think about like, oh, the great epic, uh, a song of Roland or something. And it's like, oh yeah, great epic. And it's like, well, what do we mean by the great? Maybe this is part of the source of our problems. Like, I feel like the word great, there is like that um, urge towards greatness in the like empire mm. way, you know? Um, I it totally hesitated on that word. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes me think of like all the images of George Washington floating in clouds with like light streaming out from his white wig that like the President's Gallery has in collection too, like that like um, American myth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, just think of founding fathers. You know, Miglisant links um, myth and epic to filiation, 
right? It's a way of making us all related because we are a part of this myth. And I don't know if you've known people who've had to take citizenship tests, you know, to be citizens in the U.S., but it's wild how much it really is. I, I think after Gleason, I read it as stories of, of forced filiation. Yeah. It's like, you want to be a part of this country? You got to, like, love the cloud head Washington, right? <laughs> you have to, the idea of the founding fathers, which is such a creepy phrase. Maybe I need to to love the idea of, I am a father, but maybe I need to love that idea more or something. But it always creeps me out. I'm like, they're not, whose fathers are? They're the father of just a few people, right? That's a weird word to use, but that's that filiation mm -hmm. that makes makes a connection between all the citizens but also allows you to say well, you're not really a part of it i mean that that in some ways is why like african americans have had been described from the beginning as like a nation within the nation right or, or not really a part of the american people because how could they're not really part of the founding fathers you know we can say the founding fathers didn't have enslaved people in mind but you could also say you know well if you if the founding fathers didn't have you in mind are you really a part of the nation that's part of the filiation argument, right? That's why that, that for me, that father, that epic, that myth is, I, I didn't, I have to say, I never thought of it that way until I read Glissant. And I was like, oh, wow, that language is really shocking and dangerous. And I should, why did I not see it? I mean, maybe you all saw it, uh, you know, or, or critical in different ways, but that sense of which, sense in which stories try to establish filiation. Um, whether it's in families or in nations, um, that, I, I, that, that, that connection has always really stuck with me. That's really interesting. I actually just went to a friend of mine's um, swearing in, I, I don't know what it would be called, citizenship ceremony. Yeah. Where you, you, I, I, you're granted citizenship and now you go. And then, so I, I recently just went and the, the oath that they have them take to the United States is so wild because they go through and they have them renounce any they have multiple words for like foreign princes and they have them renounce filiation to so many different versions of like parents of nations interesting and as i was sitting there i was like this feels so insane and so creepy because they went through so much effort and they put so many different like ways of saying the same thing in that they wanted them to renounce and then claim America's great forefathers it was insane yeah I think the the fact that it comes down to figures of filiation is really interesting to me because it is a re also a repudiation of the rhizome that in the anxiety it's like one thing to talk about the mangrove tree and its figure at the shoreline that's you know it's a beautiful image and fascinating plant and and a figure for caribbean history and all of that but it's also like well just how radical a rhizome is in that kind of context of like what if you had multiple affiliations like if you did have allegiance to the Hungarian prince, or if they really say like prince, foreign princes, foreign princes and I'll have we need to update our vocabulary <laughs> yeah. with that. But I can, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to rewatch. I took a video to remember, but it they said the most insane things. Like it was very not only outdated, but very specifically related, and also specifically related to a gendered 
silly. Like a gen, a gendered. You're giving up a gendered. Like so, you don't have to give up foreign princesses. No, you can keep foreign princesses, <laughs> but no. Maybe marry them into the nation. Or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it it really was like cutting off roots to other places and establishing one strong. It was very intense, but reading Glisson and this conversation actually allows me to put words to the discomfort that I had while I was watching this happen. And I was like, I don't like that this is something that happened. This happened two months ago, three months ago. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, the whole conversation also makes me think of like what all sorts of like um, estates and public humanities places are doing right now. Um, where kind of at the end of your tour, they have like a little poster board about all of the children that this white figure had with their enslaved people there, like just kind of off in the corner, where Hmm. it's like a different type of affiliation that's denied. And that kind of gets to the Stiller's conversation um, from the week before this, Mm -hmm. that there's like, you know, like an absent affiliation versus a mythical affiliation where there's like no real fathering um for anyone yeah i don't know i mean it was an offhanded comment or like a, a side comment but when we talked about albert murray you know it seems like years ago at this point um he has this moment where he says although uh, in an interview it was not something that part that uh, book that we read wasn't from the hero in the blues book but in an interview where he's being asked about like the character of the american nation and i think they're kind of trying to get him to talk about like founding fathers and filiation and he says what no american will admit is that we meaning america you know, united states that we are indisputably mulatto and that I, you know, I mean, I love Albert Murray. I love Glissant, so I'm always looking for points of contact. But in that moment, to to your observation about like we put these things in a sort of shame room around alternative modes of affiliation that maybe move outside any single route, right? And are connected to violence, are connected to to ongoing silences and so forth. That's where I think like you see the danger of the rhizome because a rhizome isn't always just like all these great things. It's also like rooted in terror, rooted in violence, rooted in pain. But so when Murray says like the nation is indisputably mulatto, but no one would say it, it is one of those things where like what a founding father is like to even say that phrase is to is to narrow the scope of what a nation is. Right. And I think that idea of the rhizome, that's why I'd never like that, that take that Glissant's not political enough. I think people just mean he's not, not making policy comments or, you know, whatever independence arguments. Mm-hmm. But I think it, what's so deeply political is the way it does get us to, to examine our everyday language, or I should say my everyday language, but I think our everyday language, where, you know, you're saying you're hearing this swearing in ceremony, you're like, strikes me as really kind of creepy and weird and then now glissant's like yeah because they're trying to cut off all roots that you have that give you life and affirm only one root i mean it's interesting to me also of course and this is this is where the single root thing is a myth i i it literally is a myth it's a made-up story because somebody's in there like i repudiate all foreign nations or whatever but of course they live from those two you know of course that's part of their life you know and but yeah, you know, so we tell those lies in order to reproduce the the vision of the of a single rooted nation, 
And it, it would be one thing if it was just a lie, but it's a condition of so much violence, right? That we have like phrases like, like unmeltable ethnics, right? And things like, you know, to talk about immigrants who like will never connect to the founding fathers because I don't know, they don't speak English or, you know, dress correctly or eat the right food, you know, whatever the xenophobia is. And so that to me is like, it's political in the sense that it gets us to think about our everyday language, but it also illuminates the importance, the necessity of the kind of swearing in oath. It isn't just like, oh, this is a weird thing we came up with. It's like, no, if you're really talking about a nation that has filiation fantasies, you better, you know, what else could you have at the initiation ceremony? Yeah. Uh, messed up down to the very base structure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But uh, maybe like <clears throat> in a way to like move forward because I feel like a lot of what Gleason wants to talk about is like what we could possibly do different, yes. right? Without having like a plan or anything like that because as you talked about that's, it's impossible to plan for a future that we can't recognize based off of like our own like rhetoric of humanity as we discussed last class um but this like idea of um relationality based on difference and difference being allowed to remain opaque i like the like opacity yeah. language that he has um feels like a really like revolutionary take and i'm reading it and i'm like yes yeah. yes <laughs> I feel like it's very political without being like explicitly extra do why, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, when we think about that notion of opacity, um, that the right to opacity, he even calls it a right multiple times. Like, like it's not, a, it's not a choice. Like it's a right that you have. Um, also has, and it's not his vocabulary, but I, it's the vocabulary I use. Also, that you have, you can have at the same time, um, because you know this, these notions of identity and difference and rhizome um, are about, as you're saying, not just about critique, but about productivity. It's like you can have opacity and vulnerability at the same time. That is, you can be open and opaque at the same time. And that, to me, is like one of the most interesting poetics, like visions of a poetics. Because it, I mean, what it does is it denationalizes our vocabulary in the sense that words that may be attached to one thing, Lysant is saying when they're put in contact with a different historical experience, whether that's, you know, gendered, national, linguistic, racial, class, you know, however we configure that difference, an idea can travel from one place where it has one meaning to another and blossom into different meanings. You know, obviously we see that with, you know, poets and musicians who like play and, and, and compose with uh, musicians from comp who have completely different models and they just have that kind of openness that's part of the creativity process. But I think as like theorists too, it's like terms can move and be both opaque and vulnerable, like maintain like some of their, their sort of meaning of origin, but also at the same time. And it's that simultaneity that I think is kind of, can be kind of hard to wrap your brain around. Can simultaneously uh, uh, be opaque and transformed, and that that 
you know, that's plants do that, right? They maintain like some base thing, but they also become all these different things like roots and branches and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so you could take like a critical term like queer, right? And it has obviously its origins in sort of act up and early AIDS advocacy and reclaiming an insult in order to have a specific meaning. But then it comes into contact with other theoretical modes where it's like, you know, what that names in one context, it holds on to that opacity, but also it's had those contacts and been transformed over time in such important ways. And that's the, for me, I, you know, he talks about the nomad, but he's like, the nomad isn't lost. The nomad's on an adventure. And, you know, I love, I love that. Like, yeah. that's what ideas, ideas have adventures, but we have, to, the risk is that we give up some propriety over them. That's hard because people really want to hold on to those origins in the same way they want to hold on to filiation because concepts have filiation. The context, they can keep that f origin in, in, their, in their opacity, right? But they don't have to be limited by that. I find that liberatory. So we talk about the politics of critique, but then, you know, you're like, but what about what, what we do and what we produce with it? I think that's liberatory to say, like, we can actually respect the unicity of a concept and let it travel and become different things. I really like that. I think that that is like, that's what I think was so striking about this work in particular is just, I felt like that was just being like coming off the page the whole time you were reading it. That idea of like liberation through allowing, like letting go of authority over ideas and over Philly, all of, you know, I don't know. I'm running Identity with, terms. Uh, you're right, yeah. 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 And it's just thinking about that with, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it has anxiety with it, but I think that's also part of the drama of, like, of thinking, right? That whether we're, we're talking about like musicians or painters or, or essay writers or poets, right? There is the risk and anxiety of like giving up your propriety because it's not yours. And then there's something real about wanting to hold on to the purity of something. I mean, there's, there's something in us, I think that often holds to that, but a glissant's promise is the Caribbean. He's like, look at the Caribbean. Like we didn't have claim to our origins and look, we have this like, culture that's like you know rivals any in the world across the archipelago right so like giving up propriety can produce a thing like the caribbean and what is the world without the caribbean like caribbean music caribbean cuisine caribbean language caribbean literature i mean this is not very many people and it's transformed the world and so that moment of like the anxiety and often the pain of giving up that propriety what comes out of that is like this possibly astonishingly beautiful thing because we can turn to musicians and say like Jamaican and Cuban musicians getting together to make an album. And it's, of course, they're just like, you know, virtu virtuosos playing and exploring. But we all can find those ways. We have to be able to give up filiation. And, and people are reluctant to do that, to put it lightly. So I've just, I've, you know, <laughs> I know, I just laid out this like long, you know, like, you know, the, the risk and vulnerability. But I do also think of, you know, what lurks always in the back of my mind is the way we've spent so much time in the last, you know, 
five to ten years in, a, in an intellectual public sphere arguing about cultural appropriation. And I've always been like, is, is it really cultural nationalism? Is that our only choice against like the exploitive, appropriative practices? Is there a third, not a third way, but like a third way of thinking, yeah, a third way of thinking about it. And Lissant gives that, but I, I like that he's attentive to the risk, but is also like, this is a risk that we not only ought to take, but we actually do all the time. Yeah, we do all the time. And there's no strict division or complete melting of people you know so you have to live in that and it's almost like having a conversation about like boundaries um which can keep you like safe while also allowing you to relate to people yeah but there's always the risk in the relation right um yeah yeah <laughs> and like really like what would music be if people did not exchange right yeah. if they did not make themselves vulnerable to new sounds and then we can stop claiming specific authors as this or that when they're really both like Jean Reese gets alternatively claimed as British or Caribbean and it's like you can have both uh -huh. you know I mean, he mentions Victor Segalan a number of times in Poetics of the Diverse, who's a European writer. But he loves Segalan because Segalan like came and wandered the Caribbean and was like, "Oh, this is it basically this is changing me as a writer." And Segalan generates this concept, you know, and Glissant alludes to it uh, in Poetics of the Diverse and talks about it more extensively elsewhere. But he. He re, Sagalan revisits this term exotic. And he's like, what if the exotic wasn't this like sort of orientalist objectification, fascination, exploitation, but was instead about something completely other that captivates me and changes me. And so he's like, you know, Sagalan has like ups and downs. I mean, he's a European wandering through the Caribbean. He's going to say stupid shit. Um, but that moment where he's like, you know, there's a different way to relate to the exotic. We don't have to just consume it, right? We can be transformed by it. Glissant is like, see, you know, you know, Reese transformed by the Caribbean. Like, where does she belong as a writer? Where does does Sagalan belong as a writer? Where do these people belong as writers? And that's a great question when the answer is multiple places. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, Gleason himself, like, you know, he's writing novels at Louisiana State and CUNY Grad Center office in Paris and Martinique and Cuba, Ghana. You know, those are places of like, where do we actually locate him as a writer? He obviously talks about himself as a Caribbean, but each of these places is a new form of contact. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of all the places that you can live or could live or even like mentally live as like an additive part of like being rather than yeah. like a transitory thing that loses effect once you leave because I, I don't think any of that's true um, I mean I'm still living within my COVID apartment uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. in some ways um, and it is interesting how living in, uh, you know, some version of like a nationalist space, like quarantine, <laughs> yeah. actually makes us feel like we're like losing part of our humanity. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, you know, not to make it about the most recent pandemic, but I mean, it was really true. It's like, 
think for so many of us, like quarantine just, it was necessary. So this isn't about it being like necessary, good, bad or whatever, but it's, I feel like you're losing, you know, I miss travel and why did I miss travel? It wasn't just like consumption. It was that sense of like, at, as you said, additive, yeah. you know, um, Glissant calls it composite, right? I mean, the yeah. same, there's synonyms, right? Um, that idea of like yourself being a composite project rather than a voyeuristic like expansion in the world right that's imperial right mm -hmm. and i think like any of us who come from the united states that's almost hard baked into our brains to be like voyeuristic imperials but another way is possible you know and when we miss those things right often isn't that kind of why we read I mean, I've had so many people ask, like, why do you, you know, work in black studies? Why do you read, you know, Latin American, Caribbean theorists? I'm like, that's, isn't that why we read? Like, to, to composite ourselves, to add to ourselves, you know, to transform ourselves. But I don't know that we do. I think a lot of reading is about consumption. A lot of travel is about consumption. But Clisson is trying to say, you know, the other ways of doing the very things we always do. Yeah. Like the word composite is so great, but it makes me think of like alloy as like a horrible or alternative where you like violently combine things into mm. something that is like one thing, which is like what he's arguing against throughout. Mm -hmm. um, but I think just having like the alternative to the word composite helps see like how good that is as like a metaphor for what he's talking about and for like Caribbean-ness as composite um, versus like that the alloy that an authoritarian culture would want. Yeah, yeah. This is great. I'm glad that, you know, Glissant was able to like provoke some like thoughtfulness. <laughs> you know, it's one of these, it's really hard. If you ever go to teach, it's really hard to teach figures that you really love. You know, because it's like, what if everybody's like, this is totally boring, right? <laughs> and maybe you're just faking it. But um, no, I appreciate you all making time and having having a chance to have this conversation, and um, you know, seeing Glissant, you know, as you know, when we were talking last night about winter and Kihano, I was really like, there's just the way center and periphery, the way sociogenesis and creolization. These are just really different ways of reading, writing, and being, and, uh, and seeing. And um, I feel like we, you know, it's moving us uh, out of like melancholia and abject and destruction and silence into all those things actually also having a different register. And the idea of a different register, a different kind of echo is like super important to me. So um, thanks and uh, have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you.